Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. My guest today is the journalist and author James Bloodworth. He's the author of Hired and The Myth of Meritocracy. In our discussion, we talked about the nature of left-wing politics, whether it has been subsumed by identity politics at the expense of class. And we also got onto his new work about toxic masculinity and incel culture. It was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So James, a lot of people will know of you from your undercover work at Amazon and Uber and taking on low paid work in order to sort of immerse yourself in that world. It does remind me very much of George Orwell down and out in Paris in London or his essays, The Spike, where he you know, de- uh, deliberately gets drunk so he ends up in jail to see what it's like or he makes himself homeless to see what it's like. Was that any, any way your inspiration for that? Yeah, so George Orwell, Jack London as well, these people were, were a massive inspiration. I mean, before I did the book, they were kind of a couple of the, the journalists who inspired me to want to be a journalist mm. um, in university and, and when I was growing up. And um, they, those like Jack London's People of the Abyss and Rota Wigan Pier and Dan yes. Knight, they were kind of, um, they were massive inspirations for, for, for my book Hired and going undercover and writing about the side of society people don't really... Uh, see so much or when they do it's you know they don't they just see the kind of homeless person on the street or something I mean it's such a powerful idea isn't it like, I mean Road to Wigan Pier that first half of Road to Wigan Pier when he's in the community he's right there there's always this lingering feeling, feeling that he could pull himself out at any point of course um, but it's still such a sort of astonishing way to do it what was the reaction where what, what, well first of all, what did you find what, what were your findings from from working in these in these jobs so, I mean, I set out originally just to look at the low-wage economy, spend six months. I was from, I'm from a working-class background, and it was a case of kind of going back 10 years later after graduating, and now, kind of, now I had some of the skills to actually document what, what mm. went on. Um, and I ended up working in an Amazon warehouse. That wasn't deliberate. It was, it was simply I was looking for jobs, and that was one of the first openings I saw. It was very easy to get a job there. And I was really quite shocked by what was going on in the Amazon warehouse, like the conditions there. Yeah. I mean, I'd been a consumer of Amazon, but I'd never been inside one of its warehouses until I wrote the book. Is this, I mean, what, your experience of Amazon, I mean, you mentioned things such as uh, people urinating in bottles because they, they feared taking a break. Um, but how common do you think this is? I mean, I think to when I, I used to work in a call centre, and, you know, if you had to go to the toilet, you had to put a special code in, and sometimes people would monitor you and they'd follow you in if you were there too long. And, mm-hmm. It was. I mean, this seems like quite a standard thing now, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, what's what's happened is because, say, market leaders, if you like, like Amazon, have been doing things like this. It then Amazon becomes the kind of models for other business people, some of them anyway, to emulate. So, yeah. um, same with Uber and the gig economy. So, I worked in a factory years ago when I was younger. I used to be a post postman. I did all kinds of jobs like that, and um, like working class jobs essentially, and. Yeah. There was never any issue of going to the toilet. There was never any issue over taking days off sick. Um, and this, what I saw at Amazon, where you were punished for taking days off sick, punished for potentially for going to the bathroom, this to me was entirely new. I hadn't seen that before. And I think it's got worse, as you say. I think it's spread since uh, Amazon and these companies have, have been seen as kind of the market leaders. Those practices have spread because people look to emulate the most successful industries. And why is that? Is that because... Is that- the influence of America, you know, I, I understand that they have very few holidays generally in the culture of American mm-hmm. uh, employment life. Is that just the sense of, uh, is that just the, the inevitable corollary of a capitalistic enterprise, that you mistreat those at the lowest end? I, I wouldn't say it's inevitable because I think there are lots of firms who do treat their workers quite well. And, and 
I think one of the issues is the decline of trade unions in the workplace. Right. That's a really obvious issue because even in the Amazon warehouse, you had laws which were being broken, which existed on paper. So when I was at Amazon, half the time I was there, I was paid less than, a, than a min, the minimum wage. Mm. And we have a minimum wage law. The problem is not the law, it's the enforcement of it. Right. And you have an understaffed and underfunded HMRC. But more importantly, I think you have no organic mechanism within the factory to enforce those rules, which would be a trade union typically. Yeah, and so I think that's absolutely right. The trade unions are things which have just sort of fallen by the wayside. Is there, is there any ap great appetite to restore the primacy of trade unions in this country, do you think? I think for younger people, I think in particular, Generation Z and many millennials, they've kind of, they've grown up in an environment where unions aren't really a thing anymore, yeah. where unions don't exist. So, I mean, there's, you know, I lived with someone, a roommate of mine recently, a Ameri young American Gen, Gen Z guy, and he's very, very left wing, but he didn't really have any idea of almost what a trade union was. Yeah. Um, which is, to me, was quite striking. I think there's, that's the problem, first of all. But I do think there is, I think it's very hard for unions to get into some of these workplaces. So Amazon, GMB reps get chased out of the car park when they try to give leaflets. Yeah. Just, and the leaflets are just, it's not calling for strikes. It's just saying, these are your rights at work. Join the union. It's um, very strange. I mean, when I was at the call centre, I remember saying to one of the employees, is there a union here? And she, said, she laughed and said, we don't do that yeah. here. And I thought, well, shouldn't that be investigated or talked about at least? Yeah. It just feels like it's not on the table. Yeah, but then you do have some companies like Hermes, for example, um, the delivery, courier delivery firm. They've actually do have an agreement with the GMB and right. negotiated with them. And it's not, you know, it's not destroyed their business or anything. They have actually been able to negotiate certain rights for their workers. And, and I think it's, it's been a very positive development. So it, it's this idea that unions just create chaos invariably in the workplace. Yeah. I just think it's wrong. Now, I've had a number of arg arguments with people on the right, particularly, who uh, are of the view that anyone who works hard can achieve and become rich. Uh, and uh, my view has always been that there are certain, uh, uh, whereas I would not like to suggest that personal responsibility and hard work don't matter because I think they're key. There are the fact is that if you come from a certain background, the odds are stacked against you. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of luck uh, as well. And, and uh, the, the, the doors that open through luck tend to come about if you are well connected and rich. And that's just the way it is. So do you think, am I right? Is meritocracy a bit of a myth? Yeah, I think, I think meritocracy is definitely a myth. I also think there's the other side of that is would meritocracy be actually desirable in the first place? Because I mean, to some extent, I think it's desirable. Like we do want people, you know, if you, if you want to do something and you, you apply yourself, you should be able to, to do that. But I think the problem with meritocracy as an ideology is it tends, to, it, it tends to say that, you know, wherever you are in society, you deserve to be there. So let's say we had a perfectly meritocratic society. Mm -hmm. Would that justify, you know, treating homeless people very badly or something? Right. Not ha having less compassion for them because, oh, well, they deserve that because they're lazy or whatever. I mean, I don't think so. But if we see meritocracy as simply uh, the notion of equality of opportunity for all, mm -hmm. that to me, that doesn't feel ideological to me. That feels, that feels, some, that feels just sensible. I mean, equality of opportunity, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with it and I think most people would agree with that. I think where the problem stems from with that, it, with just that, mm -hmm. is that unequal outcomes kind of um, don't give you equality of opportunity. So if you have these vast differences between rich and poor, mm. you, do, you tend not to have equality of opportunity because, for example, the rich can buy themselves into different schools, can pay their way through uh, for different standards of healthcare, different universities, uh, different communities where there's far less crime. Mm. So, I mean, I do think equality of opportunity is important. 
very important. But at the same time, I think you also have to look at outcomes a bit as well. Not to say everyone must be equal in terms of how much they're paid, yeah. but you do have to look at the gap between rich and poor, the opportunities some people are getting and some people aren't, because that's influenced by money. So the problem I have with the sort of the equity argument and the idea of looking at equality of outcome is it often seems to me impossible to quantify, you know, and, and it often comes down to the notion of group identity, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, and that these are the things that determine whether you will be successful or whether you don't. It seems very reductive to me because there are all sorts of, you know, fa factors that come into play in terms of how well you end up doing in life. But class and money, it seems to me, is much more tangible. This is something that you can, you can see it has an effect and is measurable. And is also surely the thing that would be most easy to resolve. Or is that naive? Yeah, I think class has the biggest impact on where someone ends up in life, regardless of all other factors. I think there's lots of evidence for, evidence for that as well. It doesn't mean that you disregard the other factors, but I think class is, like socio-economic socio background is so fundamental to where someone ends up in life. I think it's, there's, there are more interests at play in why we don't tackle that. So, I mean, I think we have, with identity politics, for example, liberal identity politics, we have in society uh, lots of people from different ethnicities, who, from both genders, from different sexualities, who have done well. And it's also in their interest not to change the class system. So, yeah. whereas I don't think you have very many working class people, genuinely working class people, in, in the media, in public, in, you know, big roles in, in society. So that narrative kind of falls by the wayside a bit. So why is it you think the focus has shifted to identity, group identity specifically? I think in some ways because it's, it's, it's easier to quantify, if you like. So if, if, say, an institution says, oh, we must have a certain percentage of people who aren't white, it's very easy to kind of work out who that is and sort through that. Same with gender, um, not quite so much with sexuality, but with class, it's much more fraught, the debate over it. So there's much more of an argument over, oh, is that person working class because... You know, their parents yeah. work or, you know, if you earn lots of money but your parents grew up in a council house, does that make you work in class? Um, if you're culturally, you like football and <laughs> uh, pop music, does that make you more working class? And, you know, there is, I, don't th I think it's easy to work out. I think you look at the economic situation of the person and, and their family. I don't, th I think it's, the that waters get That would be much muddied. easier, right? If, you, if, you, if, if our class was determined by how much money we had. Yeah, right. I mean, that is fundamentally uh, money, assets. Um, I think parental wealth is a factor. Okay. Um, you know, if you spent all of your parents' money, but you were sitting on a million inheritance down yeah. the line, I think it'd be difficult to say you're working class. But at the same time, I think, um, I, I feel like the, the issue is dodged. People become lazy and don't bother uh, looking at that and because it's easier to just focus on the other things. It doesn't, doesn't help solve the problem, though, because at the moment you have a situation where you have you can have a very wealthy say Indian graduate or something uh, or Chinese graduate those two groups which do very well typically mm. um, in our society on average who who would get into one of those roles ahead of a, a white working class boy and that is something that strikes me I mean, and I know this sounds anecdotal I suppose but I've, I've seen again and again when you have these kind of tokenistic quotas put into place you know you end up with a lot of rich ethnic minority people who would be fine without that leg up you know and it's actually working class ethnic minority people they don't. They don't advantage. They don't get any advantage out of this. So, if if it feels to me like it's it's not actually it doesn't actually do what it sets out to do. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I mean, I do think ethnic minority say people job candidates, for example, do experience discrimination in different parts of the system. Say in job interviews. So you there's been studies done where people with certain names, uh, say, Mohammed um, or something, they they 
are less likely to get a job typically mm. um, based on just their name when they have the same qualifications. I think issues like that matter. But the problem I think we have at the moment is we do focus on that. We are trying to address that. Yeah. Whereas class tends to not come into focus at all. Um, well, occasionally it does, but, but, but even then it tends to be superficial things around class. But isn't that because of the rise of uh, this intersectional form of identity politics? I mean, you have people like Robin D'Angelo, who says explicitly that if you say what you said earlier in our discussion, that class is the most, uh, the most closely connected to opportunity, that that is a form of white supremacy. That's what she says. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it becomes a kind of self-perpetuating ideology where you have these, these groups, um, so D'Angelo would be a good example, where they are, it, it's, it's self-interest on their part. I mean, they don't really want to see the structure of society change so it's more equal economically. Um, and they promote this kind of um, idea that everything would be fine if you just had a boardroom full of, you know, 50% men, 50% women, uh, 5% trans people, you know, in this country, 12% non-whites, and that would solve the problems of equality, even if the boardroom was paid 100 times as much as the people in the you, factory floor. I do think you think that's, that's what it ideology. is, though? Do you think that, I mean, she comes from a working class background, but she is earning, what, 12 grand an hour to go in and berate uh, people for being white. Um, you know, so it is, I can see why it's in her interests to maintain that. But when I hear her talk and when I read what she has to say, it feels like she believes it. It feels like she believes that every single human interaction is under, underpinned by white supremacy, everything, and that we therefore need to completely rig the system in order to fix that. I, th I think she's sincere. I'm sure, I'm sure she does, but I think it's also in her self-interest to believe that now. It's, it's, that is her kind of grift, that is her thing. So she's kind of probably rationalised even the ridiculous parts of it, that it, it has to be true because it's in my interest to believe it's true. I mean, we all do that. We all, we all kind of emotionally rationalise things which are in our interest at different times. Um, yeah. I, I would say that's part, part of it. Well, that, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, brings us on to a conversation more broadly about the left, because my feeling has always been that the left has been so sort of invaded by the identitarian movement to an extent that I don't think it's really left-wing anymore. I mean, it would be one thing if you were focusing on race, gender, etc., because, you know, racism does exist, homophobia does exist, sexism does exist, and you need to guard against it. Uh, but if you uh, implement policies that relate specifically to those categories at the expense of class and at the expense of the idea of social mobility or, or, or the class struggle or whatever you want to call it, then how can you, how can you authentically call yourself on the left? What, isn't that just at the heart of what being left-wing means? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's various different lefts. That I think that's, that's a thing. And it's, it's each one kind of vies for control of, of the establishment of, the part of whichever party, whether it's mm. the Democrat Party or the Labour Party. I think the Democratic Party in America has gone down that route way, a lot more than the Labour Party here. I think partly that's due to the, the, the influence that still exists of trade unions in the Labour Party here, for example. So, I mean, while on the one hand, yes, you do get uh, the identity politics stuff with Labour here. There is still, I think, a social democratic agenda of some sort, uh, certainly with, with Keir Starmer, for example, or, and I think even Jeremy Corbyn, who I didn't like, there is still policies on, uh, you know, we need to have a higher minimum wage, we need to get trade unions into these workplaces. I think there is still, like a residual, if you like, emphasis on that stuff. I think there. residual is the word, though. Activists may, the activist base, I think, is less interested in that stuff. That's why it might not be forever. Yeah. But I think the people who are in the Labour Party in, in politics like, have an influence on the party. I think there is still an attachment there to things like reducing the gap between rich and poor. I even think Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown, who are seen as you know, traitors to Labour, I think they were very <laughs> interested in, in that 
as well. You know, they, they did a lot in terms of bringing the paying more to, in benefits, incapacity benefit, things like that, and bringing raising up the floor of pensioners and child poverty, even though they're kind of de decried as like right wingers by these very identitarian uh, people on the young people on the left now. Yeah, although it's interesting because New Labour felt like a well a right wing project to a degree. I mean, Tony Blair never described himself as left wing. I think he would reject that label. Mm -hmm. um, and those things that you describe uh, feel, you know, you could argue that the Conservative Party similarly uh, vies for some of those things. You know, so it's, it's, it, it just feels like there isn't really an authentically left-wing party now. You know, we, we, I suppose Labour almost, almost became that through Corbyn, potentially. Yeah, I mean, but I, I still feel, I feel like Corbyn was more interested in the, the foreign policy stuff and some of the identity stuff. He was, than, yeah. yeah. Um, like, he personally is, is obsessed with foreign policy. Um, whereas I do think... I do think there is more kind of um, bread and butter social democratic stuff going on uh, in the Labour Party now with some of the, the work they're doing with think tanks and policy stuff. Yeah. So I do think, yeah, the, the activists we see on social media who are just screaming and just outraged about these ridiculous things, I think that doesn't bode well for the future necessarily. But I think no. there are still lots of people in the Labour Party who, who are just doing bo the, boring, the good, important but boring stuff. But all of those sort of the loudest voices within the identitarian movement, they often have double-barreled names. They often go for went to private school. They, it feels like a very bourgeois movement mm -hmm. to me, and I don't think we can escape that. You know, I, I don't think, you, you know, even the ones who proclaim to still have a fealty to class the class struggle, such as Laurie Penny, you know, went to Brighton College, went to the, the poshest college of all, mm -hmm. incredibly privileged. So why does this connection? Why does this correlation exist? Why, in other words, has the left? You were talking about many different types of left. Why is the left that is predominating now a middle class left? I think it's partly the decline of trade unions again. It goes okay. back to that because that used to be a kind of funnel through which people would then often enter, enter labour politics. So they'd, they'd work on the shop floor, they'd, they'd get, achieve a prominent role in the union, then yeah. they'd, they'd get into labour politics, things like that. There's been a decline in working class uh, jobs in society anyway, traditional working class jobs. There's been a fall in social mobility, so people generally are not getting into jobs like politics from a working class background. And I think there's been, you know, a professionalization of, of jobs across the board. So uh, David Goodhart, I think, has talked a lot about this. So you need all of these credentials just to do um, yeah. a job now. And in politics, you see there's been a decline in people who haven't got university degrees, master's degrees. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, Parliament used to be, uh, they used to be people from all walks of life. In I mean, there. it feels like everyone's got a PPE now from Oxford. Or... Yeah, I mean, there was a, was a period during the 20th century where it started to, because, I mean, it was, it was for the privileged Parliament. And then the 20th century, you saw this kind of uh, a more meritocratic um, yeah. movement where you did see more working class people coming into, into the Commons. But then it, that's kind of fallen back again, I think. And, and you've seen... It's quite complex. You've also got disenchantment generally with politics and institutions, which means working class people don't even want to bother going into that in the first place. But yeah. I think that's a big part of it. And it's just dominated by these voices who are very good at self-promotion, um, who are quite articulate often because they've been to these expensive schools and universities. And it becomes this, what Irving Howe once called stylized marginality. So it's about self-promotion. It's, um, it's about kind of this grift and promoting yourself as a victim. And, and, and you're kind of this perpetual victim, but you're also a really prominent voice in these, in these mass movements and often make a big income from that online. I mean, that's very interesting as well, isn't it? The way in which uh, the, the more sort of, I suppose, uh, upper middle class com commentators who do promote the idea that they are part of a victim class mm -hmm. or want to identify into a victim class. I mean, this is happening a lot with, uh, apparently at the moment, the recent survey said that up to 40% of 
uh, young Americans identified as LGBTQ, which would suggest, I mean, just statistically, most of those will be straight. Yeah. So why are straight people identifying into an oppressive, uh, an oppressed class? What's that about? I, I'd say it's it's a fashionable label uh, okay. for some people. It's they 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 have privilege, say socioeconomic privilege, and they need to find a way to skirt around that. So they they will apply one of these labels to themselves. I, I mean, I don't think that's always the case. Obviously, yeah. some people are some people are gay, trans, whatever. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, talk about the discourse of white privilege, and it, it's you know I understand the concept and I understand what activists are saying, which is that if you are white in a white majority country, you're not going to experience prejudice on the basis of your skin colour. And that's true. I mean, it does happen, but it, re it rarely happens. Um, so I understand that point. But, I, but there is evidence to suggest that the, the phrasing of itself has made things worse for white working class people, because it implies that there is nothing to fix here. There is no issue here uh, that poor people, on uh, white people on food banks, they're fine because they've still got their privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got people like Mama Bergdorf saying you can still be homeless and have white privilege, right? This kind of thing guaranteed to create resentment, guaranteed to to uh, almost keep people down. So, it is, and yet to to make the point that I've just made is to open myself up to accusations of racism or or whatever, wanting to promote a, a white supremacist status quo, which isn't true. Yeah. What do you make about this discourse? I mean. I think I find it very divisive, which makes it then harder to actually address the socioeconomic challenges. So mm. if you have movements of the left which are um, railing against white men, you, why, why would you alienate that constituency of working class people? Why, mm. would you not, why would you not kind of want to bring people of all ethnicities together from, say, a working class socioeconomic background? Because you need to do that to actually change yeah. the system. You can't just... I feel This is why I feel like... It is almost in the interest of capitalism to actually divide people up like this. To say that you know you can't, if you're black, you cannot relate to someone who's white. If you're if you're a woman, you cannot possibly understand. Or if you're a man, you cannot possibly understand what the experience is like to be a woman. Mm. Um, I think we all have lots of things in, more in common than we don't. Even people from from very different backgrounds. And I think that's. I think the job of politics is to emphasise the universal to emphasize what we share in common so that then you can come together and actually change the system and, and get justice. And that was the bedrock of all sorts of civil rights movements and even, even Stonewall in its original form was about trying to find what we have in common, saying sort of gay people aren't these alien things, they're just like you. Whereas of course now Stonewall has flipped the other way and says no, we're completely different, we're not talking to anyone. Um, th so that strikes me as a, as a real problem because all traditionally left-wing movements have understood that this is the way forward. Um, Mark Lilla wrote that book on uh, the once and future liberal and talked about how when you when 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 left wing movements, particularly in politics, really tie themselves into this identitarian knot, it never translates to success at the ballot box. No, I mean, Be it can't because it's about a success at the ballot box is about building coalitions. And that flies in the face of this like commissar like policing of people's differences. So I think the Internet's made this far worse because mm -hmm. you have people who have no authority in real life who seem to get off on policing the discourse online. So they will uh, cancel people uh, who, who step outside of that or, or say something wrong. And it, it just makes things even more divisive, creates even more division, which, which flies in the face of actually bringing about real change. It's like a game to those people. So I'm, and that I would say, like, I'm really interested in what you said about how there being multiple forms of left wing. And to the extent that I think it's become so confusing to people. So when, if I talk about left-wing politics people, they will assume I mean putting pronouns in your bio, flying a rainbow flag uh, on Twitter, and uh, being against free speech, uh, for instance. That, those would be, but that's not what, to me, left-wing means at all. Mm -hmm. um, so where do you 
put you, how do you identify? Where do you put yourself now? Uh, yeah, I mean, just quickly, that reminded me of something. I remember Christopher Hitchens said that uh, when he was at university, it was the demand was like cops off campus, and now it's like cops on campus. Yes, yeah, yeah uh, exactly. That was quite quite amusing. Um, I, I would still put myself, place myself on the left. I mean, I don't really identify with groups. Mm. I, I, I just think my main interest really is still, I still see that class and economics define where someone ends up in life and have the biggest influence on life generally and, and politics. So, so for me, class is the most important thing. So that, to me, I'm on the left. Um, whether If everyone else thinks differently on the left, I still would say I'm on the left because I think that's traditionally what the left has interested itself in. Right, but then isn't there an argument for saying that, you know, rather than say there are multiple forms of left wing and sort of and accept that, say, actually, no, there aren't. The identitarian movement isn't a left-wing movement because, you know, the, the body of work of, of left-wing writing and literature over the, over the decades is very much firmly grounded within class and money, and we can't get away from that. This, this identitarian thing strikes me as quite a relatively new uh, phenomenon. And, 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 and for me, it feels more right-wing because it's obsessed more with middle-class concerns. So isn't there a case for just saying you're not left-wing? Yeah, to, to these I, I mean, I do, I do agree with you in, insofar as it, it is, I think, a middle-class thing is very compatible with capitalism it's uh doesn't really challenge the status quo but yeah. i think it's slightly fruitless to get into you know you're really left wing you're not because it's at the end of the day it's not a religious movement you don't have this text where it's like this is the true the one true i mean there used yeah. to be the debates about marxism and this isn't real marxism it's like at the end of the day it doesn't really matter because it's like there is no one true word of of the left or one true word of the right so it's yeah yeah it's kind of like what the majority of the left thinks at the time, that is the left. Um, I would just say I have a different interpretation of what's good for society. I wonder if it might be best just to dispel with left and right altogether. I mean, because, you know, I, I, if I ever I get into a discussion about whether I'm left wing or right wing, you know, I don't subscribe to an ideology. I don't, I don't let someone else make my rules up for yeah. me. Some of my views are traditionally left wing. Some are probably traditionally right wing. And I don't care about that. And so maybe we just get rid of them altogether because it's tribalistic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is so... It is becoming harder to kind of uh, pin down those things. So if it, again, if somebody asks me, "Are you on the left or right?" I'll say left, but they'll often make assumptions then yeah, and, yeah. and think I think things that I don't think. So think I have right. a problem with free speech, or even even so, I think that that I'll somehow think that the problem in Europe now is NATO or something right. because that's there are lots of people on the left who unfortunately do say things like that. So I mean, it is becoming harder to to kind of define, but at the same time, I do think that. The, the labels still have some use because I do think there are, so Bernie Sanders, for example, po those left-wing politicians who do kind of focus still on traditional issues, and it does have some value, but it's more complicated than just left is, for me, like left is good, right is bad or something. That's just, uh, well, that well left thinks this, right thinks this, because it is quite fluid at the moment, it seems. Hugely. I mean, at the time of the 2016 election, I was contacted by, I'd, I'd um, done a number of satirical videos uh, relating to Trump, and so people in America had contacted me saying that they had been Sanders, uh, they had been Sanders supporters. When he dropped out, they voted for Trump, right? So that, like, and people don't, can't get their heads around this, that actually, this is why I often feel that the division is redundant now, <laughs> because, particularly because Labour is clearly no longer the party of the working class. I mean, that's absolutely clear from the voting record, isn't it? Or, or am I wrong about that? Um, I do think there is, so I don't want to do the thing where people redefine the working class to suit what's, what's their... Uh favoured electorate. So, I mean, one of the things that the Corbynistas did after the 2019 election was they tried to say that, oh, the, the, the real working class is like stu PhD students, really? out of work PhD students. And yeah, I mean, there was this movement because 
fewer working, traditional working class people were voting Labour. There was a swing towards the Conservatives. So there were people in the Labour movement, and John Crudders has written about this very eloquently. There were people in the Labour movement who said, well, actually, the, the real working class today is are the are people who vote for Labour. By definition, they're working class. And it, it, it's okay. just like defining working class by what your ideological beliefs are rather than by your socio-economic background. Yes. I do think, again, I do think that Labour does still have a quite big working class constituency. I think, I don't think the, the red wall will stay blue uh, come the next oh, really? election. I think so much, so much is happening at the moment with, with the economics of, of Britain, for example, I think with, with inflation, with cost of living crisis. I mean, I do think that left-wing activists are wildly out of touch with the concerns of the man and woman in the street mm -hmm. um, in those communities. But at the same time, I think people do tend still to vote with their wallets when, it's, when they're squeezed this much. I think that will make a big difference come the election. I, I generally agree, but I do think the impact of the culture war is, is underestimated insofar as mm, maybe. Boris Johnson coming out and clearly expressing what a man is and what a woman is has far more of an impact than people realise, mm -hmm. I think. The fact that, that Keir Starmer and his cohort flounder whenever they're asked the question, I think people think, well, these are just sides, this is a sideshow side to govern, this is just culture war nonsense that no one cares about. Actually, women do care that you can't define them. You know, that's 50% of the electorate. Yeah, no, I, 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 I find it hard to know at this point uh, what... I think some things in the culture war, war are just people don't take much notice of them. I think this issue people do take more notice of because it's so fundamental, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And especially when it, when it comes into areas that are supposed to be science-based. So when it comes into the health healthcare sector, when yeah. you have uh, people talking about uh, men getting pregnant and, and things in hospitals, I think... Look, I'm, I'm all for empathy when it comes to trans people. I think um, their rights should be respected. I think we should have compassion. But at the same time, I, I don't think when you're in a setting, say sports setting or, or in, a, in a hospital, you have to also acknowledge biological reality. And I don't think that is incompatible with compassion and empathy. I wouldn't have thought so, exactly. I mean, I, you know, the, the, people don't like being lied to, I think. And I think when, when you yeah. know, that BBC article, I don't know if you saw it a few weeks ago, talking about a serial killer, an elderly serial killer who had dismembered an elderly mm. woman, killed other women. And only at the end of the article, it casually mentions, oh, uh, who identifies as female. So it's a man. Because mm -hmm. this behavior is not the behavior of an elderly woman. We all know that. And you read it and you think, well, why are you lying to us? You know, mm -hmm. why is the mainstream media, the, the state broadcaster, mm -hmm. openly lying? You know, that sort of stuff does really stir resentment, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it creates further distrust in institutions, which yeah. I think that is dangerous over the long term. I think if uh, this is one of the reasons why I think Russian propaganda has been successful in some quarters. And whether it's over COVID vaccines or whether it's over what's going on in Ukraine or this kind of disinformation, is, it creates this, uh, because you don't trust in the institutions of your own society, it creates this idea where you so don't you, know what's true anymore. But you're talking about... Russian disinformation is in what sort of uh, uh, Twitter farms and people and, and the Russian government infiltrating that way? Is that what you mean? Yeah, and, and so, I mean, you have left-wing academics. For, it's not just left-wing academics, but they're the ones who've been paying attention to. So you, so you have people in some of the universities who are promoting this idea that um, by just completely muddying the waters about what's true and what's not, they're just asking questions. And, yeah. and some of those people are, are regularly on Russian state media. And I think part of the reason uh, that finds an audience in this country is, it, I mean, it's a declining trust, declining trust in institutions, whether yeah. that's from the Iraq war, because people feel they were lied to about that, whether it's uh, because of the financial crash and people no longer believe that the narrative, you know, there's no more boom and bust. Or, yeah. I think there's, 
generally been, and, and also media being dominated by upper middle class people who, who working class people can't relate to. So it's, um, you have this, so the media today, I think, in my profession as a journalist, is often dominated by liberal groupthink. You have people from a very narrow socioeconomic background who all kind of think, have the same kind of beliefs. And if you step outside of that, you're kind of um, treated as sort, sort of a black sheep. And I think um, most people don't come from that background. Most people don't hold a lot of those beliefs, certainly when it comes to things like law and order, say. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes people feel alienated from the society they're in. They, they, don't, they hear this coming from institutions and they can't, it doesn't resonate with them. So how do we resolve that legitimation crisis where, you know, as you say, mainstream media broadcasting is uh, ideologically driven? It will tell you the story through that lens. You know, I mean, even things like the BBC reporting on that largely peaceful protest where even in the headline it admitted that 23 police officers were badly injured you know that sort of thing um and that sort of seems to be not just in the media but academia uh civil service it's sort of embedded into various institutions what's the way out of that because i think people i think you're right i think the the mistrust of authority figures generally leads people down some very odd rabbit holes conspiratorial rabbit holes Mm -hmm. there are people i know who i've spoken to who have started to believe all sorts of weird bizarre conspiracy theories just because they assume everything they're being told is a lie yeah so I, how do we resolve that i think it's very dangerous when you lose all your bearings so you can be, mm. you can be cynical i'm cynical sometimes and i feel cynical about certain things or people or institutions but when you completely lose all your bearings i think this is one of the things that the russians have recognized that the thing is not to i mean they in the soviet union they used to try and create this completely alternative reality that yeah you know, as all tyrannies do. Yeah, right? but I think nowadays you see a country like Russia. It's 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 just about creating mass confusion. So you lo- completely lose your bearings and you do not know what's true or false because that that makes it easy for this authority type figure, a Putin type figure, to come in, and people look for someone to blame and someone to follow in those those situations. But are you saying because I mean that that argument though has been used to suggest that, for instance, the Brexit vote is illegitimate because. Russia disseminated so much misinformation during the course of that. No, I mean, I don't think... I think they tried to have an influence on that, but I think there's, there are much bigger, deeper issues that affected that than, than Russia. I, but I think it's more about um, sowing disinformation now, for example, and, and even over the COVID stuff, over, the, over our COVID vaccines, for example, they, yes. were, they were spreading disinformation. And a family friend of mine um, from Shrewsbury, oh. uh, he actually was a conspiracy theorist and got drawn into this mm. during COVID and then, then actually died about it from COVID. Right. And oh. Nick Cohen wrote about it um, last year and it was someone who'd, who'd, who'd started off kind of questioning the establishment, which I think is good. I think, I think we should all do that. But then had no bearings, had no, had no idea what was a good source of information or a negative source or a destructive source of information. And the internet, I think that it gets very easy to then get sucked into a, ra- a dangerous rabbit hole. And I mean, that's a real worry, isn't it? The way yeah. that people do spiral out of control. And they're, they, you know, Not a bad person. It's just no. someone who was disillusioned, disenchanted with mainstream politics, like lots of people are. And then the first kind of sources they encountered, or the first people they encountered in Shrewsbury, because there is a big conspiratorial community yeah. there, um, led them down a very dangerous path, which ultimately, I think, contributed to their death because they refused to... Uh, take any uh, precautions with COVID and then they died alone in their flat um, in 2020. Because I find these days when when I read an article, I always have to check in another paper. I mean, I do, because there's always a disparity. There's always always someone, a a sort of authorial voice there 
trying to skew it or tell me what mm. to think about it. And that's a that's a I, I don't know how to how to get beyond that. You know, we're, we're not in that world anymore where the news are just telling you what the news is and you leaving you free to decide what you think about it. Yeah, I mean, Robert Conquest, uh, the, the anti-Soviet historian, great, great author. Um, he once said, I think that he's, he, he had his kind of five laws or whatever. And he was like, one of them was that you're, you're, you're conservative about the thing you know most about. Right. OK. I don't know if that's quite true. But what I've noticed with lots of media is when you read about a subject you know very well, say it's a topic you're very familiar with, you're yeah. an expert in, you just know when you read it in a newspaper that it's going to be very, very wrong in some way. Yeah, it, Because sure. I think that partly goes back to how journalism's just squeezed in terms of money as well. So you just have generalists just churning something out in half an hour. And so you re read that and it's just, and then you think, well, if that's wrong, what does, does that mean everything else is wrong as well? I definitely have seen that in some people I know. Oh, who, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing. I had that experience many years ago where I read um, Michael Moore's book, uh, what's it called? Straight white men? Something to do with white Stupid men. Stupid white men. Stupid white men. So I read that. I was very young when I read it. And uh, I know a lot about Northern Irish politics and I read his chapter on the, and it was so wrong. It was so fundamentally wrong. And I'd, been, I'd sort of gone along with everything else he'd said and I got to that chapter and I thought, well, if he's that wrong on that, what else, what else is he getting wrong here? You know, that, and that just seems to be... But on the, by the same token, I've also noticed things that I know, there are plenty of gaps in my knowledge, believe me, but there are areas I do know a lot about. And then I see major institutions who are similarly meant to know a lot about this lying about it or getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if you think about the gender and sexuality issue, there are articles in the Scientific American getting it 100% wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's not just hacks Mm -hmm. throwing no. something out in half an hour. It's the th people at the very top. It's the people in authority lying. Yeah, I mean, a, a big part of this stuff, I think, is driven by ideology. It's not just constrained. Like, yeah. you, you don't have to write nonsense. Just, I mean, I sometimes are on a very tight deadline and have to turn something out quite quick. I, I still try and have some loyalty to the truth, though. Um, right. I think that's, that's the, but why has that been lost? Because for me, that's a prerequisite for journalism. I think it's polarization that's contributed to that. I mean, I think polarization. If you look at the, me the main the, the main medium that journalists use to communicate now is Twitter, yeah. and Twitter is the most is more polarized a space than any space I've encountered in real life in you know the flesh and blood. Yeah. Um, and it, people, when I don't go on Twitter for a while, then I go on there. I'm kind of astonished by the way people take sides and just will not give an inch to the the people they see as their, the other side. And I think the, the trans debate would be a good example of that, where I think both the trans activists and gender critical activists, I think they have, they both both make decent points in different ways. They both make bad points also in, in different ways. But I think the vitriolic nature of it, I mean, there has to be a compromise on this kind yeah. of stuff. In some, There has to be some compromise on this stuff. But it feels like both factions just completely dig in. And because they, they're in these two echo chambers, I think, uh, they, 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 they also end up subscribing to even more kind of extreme beliefs. I think the, 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 that's a good example of that, but it's not the only example. I but think, I think that, that, that occurs across lots of different ideas. But why is it, and this is something I would really like if you could answer, because I don't know the answer, why is it that that seems to be more prevalent on the left or on left-wing voices? I mean, if you take the trans debate that you've just... Although, of course, gender-critical feminists are overwhelmingly left-leaning, right? They've been branded as right-wing, so let's mm -hmm. just put them in that bracket for now, right? Uh, even though they're not. Um, we see a lot of rape threats, death threats, harassment, 
from the trans activist side, mm -hmm. you never see that from the gender critical side, right? That doesn't happen. I, now, why, why is there such an overwhelming ferocity on that side of this debate? Uh, well, I do. I do think you see nasty stuff from nasty stuff. Sure. So I mean, you, you we don't I, see reams of death, death threats and rape threats and that kind. No, of thing. No, no. But I think that's be, that's typically because the gender critical side is mostly women, and it tends to be men who threaten rape and threaten violence. I right. mean, that's that's if we look at the statistics on online abuse or or real life abuse, it's okay. men who overwhelmingly carry out these things and. Uh, the, the gender critical movement is mostly women, so I would say that's why. Okay, I mean, you that's do, interesting. You do see na some nasty stuff, um, which I don't think helps at all. So, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, it polarizes it. So I think the gender critical uh, feminists have a really strong argument that you should not be able to go in women's spaces just because you identify as a woman. That, yeah. I think that's you should not be able to play uh, in a women's sports category um, as a biological male. I think that's to me that that is obvious. But then I don't think it helps the cause when you have shrill, loud voices on the gender critical side. I'm not yeah. saying leading uh, proponents of the, the, those arguments or columnists or people like that. I'm not saying those people, but you do have these loud voices who don't believe trans people exist, think that gender dysphoria is not real, yeah, and yeah, we'll, we'll just dismiss these uh, people as you know men in frocks and stuff. And I just think that's very offensive. But I also just think it's it's very unhelpful. Oh yeah, I mean I've been, you're, I've been you're not winning advocates for your for exactly. your cause by saying that. No, I think that's absolutely right. I've been piled on by those gender critical feminists as well. I've had to block quite a few, uh, but they're the extreme. You know, I'm talking about yeah. sort of, you know if we take the um, you know what happened the other day where J.K. Rowling has lunch with a number mm -hmm. of female commentators, really decent bunch of people enjoying lunch, having wine and pasta, and then all these left wing voices or people who claim they're left wing saying, look at these, this coven of hate-filled, evil bigots and all that. And, 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 you know, you stop and think for a second and think, but you must know that's not true. You must know these are decent people who happen to have a different worldview than you. What I want to know is why is that capacity to lie, or at least the willingness to just misrepresent the truth, so predominant? I'm not saying it doesn't happen on the right, but so predominant on the left. I mean, I do think it happens on the right with Viktor Orban, for example. I think there's a, there's, there have been people who've supported him, and he's, do, he's done some very bad things, I think, is sense responsible. He's not pro spe free speech. He's not against anti-Semitism, yeah. promoting conspiracy theories. I think on the left online, you have this kind of siege, like barracks mentality where people will justify behaving appallingly because they, they tell themselves that they have no real power. Yeah. They tell themselves that their enemies are all powerful. So that means, therefore, that anything goes in terms of winning. So, But why can't people... This, this was something that the, the, the communists used to justify things in the past that, you know, well, certain groups have power in society uh, and so anything we do is justified. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, look, you cite examples of, of, of course, there are right wing people who will lie, have that tribalistic behavior. Donald Trump was happy to misrepresent reality continually. Um, you know, that, that's a given. Um, but why is it that the, the, the figureheads from the left, or at least the left, the sort of woke left, whatever you want to call them, who are mainstream entertainment figures, mainstream popular figures, are willing to openly lie. And, you know, even people like Philip Pullman, um, people who will just, they'll say on Twitter, I've decided that these people are motivated by hate and bigotry, as though they're some kind of telepath. As though now, a an adult would sit there and say, hold on a minute, let me think about what they're trying to say. Let me engage with that discussion. Let me, let me work out whether there's any merit to what they're saying. A child says, you're an evil, nasty person, you're Satan. Mm -hmm. And yet that childlike mentality is coming from people like Philip Pullman and coming from people like, you know, 
comedians and artists. And that's why I think it's slightly more troubling because it's so mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I think the left has become more inquisitorial. So uh, it, it does feel at times like a religious movement where if you, f if you fall outside the community of the good, uh, so to speak, you're kind of exiled and, and you're persona non grata. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in that position on the left myself. So lots of people just will not have anything they won't to do with to me um, because I have the wrong opinion about something. So it's, it's quite bizarre in some ways. Um, I think this has got worse. Um, have you lost friends over, over views? Um, I'm not sure if I... Well, yeah, I, I suppose I have a few, but I tend not to make friends with people over politics anyway. So my, right. my, my actual friendship groups, they tend to have lots of different kinds of politics. So, I mean, I'm not really spending time... Like lots of working-class people, I think we don't just hang around with people who are from our profession or whatever. Like yeah, I have yeah. My friends back home, some of them aren't interested in politics at all. Um, but, but, but why would people, I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer, but why would people be so willing to say things they know not to be true that are verifiably untrue? I mean, surely that's a kind of intellectual self-destruction, isn't it? But, then that's when I say it becomes almost like a pseudo-religion. Um, you have these doctrinal beliefs and you will adhere to them regardless of the evidence. Then it's... it's, it's basically the same way certain people's religion works. They, they will shut down, yeah. you know, like a flat earther or, as well, like a flat earther or something. They will shut off any kind of um, alternative evidence. And, and it's, a lot of it's to do with identity. And I think online, again, has amplified this. So you have people who their identity is so bound up with their, poli with their, their own politics, with mm. their sense that they're a good, like, righteous person. And so if you disagree with them about something, you're not just disagreeing with them uh, you're not just disagreeing with, with this idea that's separate from them. You're yeah. fundamentally attacking them, their identity as a person and how they see themselves. I think that's right. become m more of an issue with online because online people have turned themselves into brands. People, uh, especially in the Twitter space, commentators become brands and then you have audience capture. So they, they're afraid to go against what their audience thinks. I mean, Owen Jones, we've seen this. Uh, with, we saw this with Corbyn. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had a conversation with Owen in 2017 and he said he was saying, you know, we both agree that Corbyn has to go. And then there was that election. Then he completely did a, uh, a 180 turn and was then the most dogmatic Corbyn Easter on Twitter because he didn't want his audience to. Maybe he changed his mind. Against it. Yeah, but it was too it was too much. It was like there, yeah. I, I agree people can change their minds. When people go from one extreme to the other, I feel like there's overcompensation okay. at play. Uh, that's interesting. I like what you say about this branding idea. I mean, that's a good way of, that's an interesting way of thinking about it because I always feel like, isn't it great to be proven wrong? If you're proven wrong, it means you won't carry on repeating a falsehood and making a fool of yourself. I, I had it quite recently where I wrote an article. I made a statement about a group which was factually wrong. They contacted me. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll correct that and I'll never do that again. That's great because I could have, if they hadn't done that, I might have repeated it more and more. Why is that not a positive thing? Why is that not something we can all say thank you? Thank you for no, I, I think it Reducing is using the evidence. You know, I, I think it is a good thing. I think it's, it's a very healthy thing for the individual. So I'm someone who is um, instinctively quite dogmatic. I would say, right? Or I. So when I was younger, when I was I was on the far left when I was younger, and I was I was quite dogmatic about things, and I didn't. When someone disagreed with me, I'd feel kind of these kind of pangs of insecurity, like it was... Like a personal attack. Yeah, it, it would feel like that. And I've, I've tried, it's, it's a work in progress, it's always a work in progress, but I mean, I, I'm not like that so much anymore. Mm. I feel like I'm much more 
tolerant of people who think differently and it's like, look, we can think differently, it's fine. I'm fine with ambiguity. Um, I think I've, I've come a long way since then because I've consciously tried to do that because it's, I think it's bad for you as a person just to be angry all the time. I don't oh, yeah. use Twitter so much anymore because, uh, well, I mean, I have to for, as a journalist, but I feel like you just have these people who wake up in the morning and search for things to be outraged about. Um, I don't want to be that kind of person around my friends and family. Um, and I just think that you don't actually find, you're, you make it harder to find solutions, which involves getting input from lots of different sources. And, you know, I may still think that this one thing is right and this other person is wrong, but that doesn't mean they're completely wrong. And it doesn't mean that there aren't flaws in my argument, which I'll learn from talking with them. I mean, it's sad in a way, isn't it? Because if you do, I mean, I've lost friends who are now convinced that we live in a neo-fascist state and they see fascists in every shadow and they, you know, they see any, they interpret any mild political difference as evidence of, of neo-Nazism. And that must be a horrible, that, that, that must be like being in a cult where you, you know, you see demons everywhere. I, I think that's really sad. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's damaging, I think, for your own work as well. So, so I'm just starting to write, write a new book. And one of the things I notice is that if I meet people who just disagree with me about this thing and just chat about it with them, mm. even I may still go away and I still think what I thought before, but there will be holes in my argument that I hadn't, hadn't noticed before they, yeah. they had spoken to me about it. And then my work becomes much stronger for that. Um, so I think it's absolutely essential just from a self-interested position to seek out people who uh, yeah. disagree with you. So what's the new book about? Uh, so the new book is, will be about, um, I'm writing it now, it's about um, the manosphere and kind of... The manosphere. The manosphere. So, so online subcultures of men, um, various online subcultures of men, whether, so from incels to men going their own way to... It's not really pickup artists anymore, but, but these kind of subcultures that have arisen um, in recent years on the back of the internet and, and also as a kind of um, reaction to dating apps as well, I've noticed, like incel culture is is dating apps and the rise of those have had, has had a big influence on the growth of incel culture. Have you spoken to people who self-identify as incels? Yes, yes, many. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. How, how, how do they strike you? I know that's a broad question. Mm -hmm. But they, they're so mythologised in the media that it's difficult to sort of, almost difficult to see them as human beings in a way, isn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, the, this is one issue where, that I've researched a lot and spoken with lots of these people and this is another thing that frustrates me about the media because the only time incels are really covered in, in the media it's when there's some terrorist attack. It's, you know, is yeah. this an is this incel related or not? Or just as this kind of hateful neo-Nazi movement um, as it should be banned or we should clarify, with far-right links. Because I think people may not know incel means involuntary celibate. Yes. Groups of men who have decided to swear off women. Well, is that... Well, swear off women is, is men going their own way. So they've, they've right. decided to come. They're like male separatists. Okay. It's like you had female separatists in the f feminist movement in, yes, the, yes. in the 60s, 70s. Uh, men going their own way is male separatists. Incels are people who've resigned themselves to a life of s without intimacy. I was going to say sexlessness, but it's intimacy, really, because lots of people say to them, why don't you just uh, get an escort or so pay for an escort or yeah. something if it's just sex? But they, say, they will often say... Well, no, it's about intimacy and having experiencing romantic love. And it's um, mostly younger people, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it's overwhelmingly young men. And again, there are some of these forums which, yeah, you, it's, it's quite misogynist um, worldview attached to the intel movements. But, but for the most part, it's mostly very depressed uh, young men 
uh, late teens, early 20s, typically, sometimes older, who, and often they have problems such as autism, so they find it hard to socialize, facial disfigurements, disabilities. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, like the vitriolic coverage the intel movement receives is, is this great threat to society. Well, I mean, most incels are non-violent. Most incels just confine themselves to trolling on internet forums and so where I mean, big, like. big question, because, and I'm sure your book answers it and develops it, but what, what, where does this come from? Where is it? How has this happened? I mean, it's complex, obviously. So the rise, the fact that there are more sexless men nowadays, not, not all of them identify as incels, obviously. Mm. There's been a huge rise in the, portion, in the proportion of young men who are not having sex in America, uh, in Britain, in places like South Korea as well, in, like all over the world. And one of the reasons is, uh, in, in the West, for example, is the decline of, of traditional institutions like marriage. So uh, women's socioeconomic um, uh, liberation, if you like. So women, like many of these things are good as well. So women no longer have to marry just to keep a roof over yeah. their head. They can work themselves. So these, these are not necessarily negative things. Um, but this has meant that women can be much more discerning about who they partner up with, who they hook up with. Yeah. Um, which leaves more men on the shelf. In, in, back in the old days, olden days, uh, people would tend to pair off with people in their village. There'd be lots of pressure on women that they needed to get married. Uh, they needed to find a, a, a suitable partner to marry. Nowadays, you can go on a dating app and you can, um, you can date someone who lives in a, in a big, big city. You don't have to confine yourself to that pool of people. Mm. Um, and dating apps, uh, uh, the rise of dating apps, I'd say I think most young people now use dating apps to, to find a relationship. They are ruthless in terms of the algorithm is ruthless. So you get weeded if you if you're not photogenic, yeah. if you don't have the the correct like vital statistics in terms of your height or whatever it is, uh, you're not even going to get in front of the person. Whereas even in the days of bars and clubs and stuff, yeah, you would at least be able to make an impression of someone with your personality if you're yeah. charismatic or well dressed or whatever. The life of the party. Dating apps kind of funnel these uh, our selection criteria through even more narrow. Yeah, they're brutal, aren't they? Things. So I mean, yeah, you don't even get in front of someone if you don't tick this. And decisions box. are made in a second. Yeah. In terms of swiping left or right. right. Yeah, so I think that's made a made a huge difference. And also, because the sheer volume of rejection uh, people can can experience on dating apps, it's unprecedented, really. So I mm. mean, when I was when I was kind of between the ages of like sixteen and. 22 I think I didn't have a girlfriend I had one girlfriend when I was 16 then I didn't have another girlfriend for like five years I think I was living in the countryside with my grandmother uh, I was quite reclusive at that time didn't go out a lot it was like my own my own fault really but I could always kid myself with this story that oh if I wanted to yeah if I wanted to I could I could get a girlfriend I could protect my ego by telling myself yeah if I wanted to it'd be fine what dating apps do is the bar is very low in terms of putting yourself out there. You just create a profile and there you go. But the volume of rejection is higher than anything I would have ever, I ever experienced in right. that situation. So you, can, you could be getting rejected uh, hundreds of times in, you know, in now, an afternoon. I haven't seen how the apps work. Do you, do you see the level of rejection? Or are you not told when well, people I mean, reject you're, you? You're going to be getting no matches if your profile Fine, okay, is subpar. Right. And I think we can say... Look, I don't think it's as harsh as being told to F off by okay, a woman okay. in real life. But it gives you some idea of your place in kind of the sexual hierarchy, so to speak. Yeah. So people aren't stupid who are, you're not getting any matches. And then you hear these, you look at Instagram, you see these men like Dan Balzerian who are surrounded by, by women in bikinis or whatever. It, it kind of creates this sense that 
you're never going to, you, it's hopeless for you. It's a waste of time. Because right. they transpose that onto real life and think that, because, you know, Gen Z, uh, many millennials have just been brought up where these things, where online is everything. Is, is and it, I think they transpose that onto the real world and think, you know, what goes on apps is, is, is reality. Whereas I, I've noticed that a lot with younger people. Um, but some people interpret, don't some people interpret that movement, the incel movement, as being a reaction against feminism? I think and it a, partly a, is, a, yeah. a re, But also a reaction against female equality. We don't mm -hmm. like it anymore because we're not in control. Is that yeah, a I mean, fair I, point? I, I definitely think that's part of it. But it's, my point is, though, that's not the only element of it. Right, I see. Because the, that, that's been, I mean, there's been a reaction against female equality for a long time, since, you know, the before the 90s, you know, for, forever, really. But, I mean, there's... There was there was books being written in the '90s talking about the male backlash against feminism. Yeah. But what's amplified it is uh, technology. I think is the kind of the, the the way in which romance has been kind of outsourced to algorithms. I think that's made a massive difference. And and from uh, immersing myself in this world for the, for the past two years, really, um, the conversations I have with people younger than me, they often have a very, to my mind, distorted view of how romance and dating works. So it's, it's much more superficial, I think. And to me, that's, that's obviously stems from what goes on on app. So you have men getting, far more men getting plastic surgery now, and right. extreme plastic surgery in, in some instances. Whereas in the past, I never think that, I don't think that would have been such an issue because they would, because again, I have friends who I go out with on the weekends and they're not the most, they're not, you know, cover models. They're not the most, uh, they don't Careful, have the chiseled they, they might be watching. So yeah, they, yeah, I mean, they don't. They don't all have the chiseled jaw, okay. or, or some of them are kind of five foot seven or something, and they still they still do well because uh, when it, it when they they kind of communicate their personality or whatever, it's not just about these superficial. Things. No, I mean confidence is I think the biggest yeah, thing, isn't it? It's, there's all sorts of things. And Mia Levitin wrote a book about. It. She went on I think over a hundred Tinder dates and wrote this book about it. Yeah. And she said something very interesting. She said, you know, if she put all the people she'd ever dated in real life and met in real life on a dating app, she'd probably reject most of them. Right. Because the thing she liked about them was something that couldn't be kind of just slotted into one characteristic. It was the vibe. It was their personality. It was the chemistry. Yeah. I mean, I'm, think, I'm told even scent is a big deal and pheromones. Yeah, I mean, and, I, you know. I think this idea that everything can be can be kind of um, put through this this narrow kind of algorithm yeah. and we, it's, we can turn dating into shopping. So is that, fundamentally is it, wrong. Is that is that connecting more broadly then to the commodification of ourselves through social media, the way we, yeah. we, we package ourselves up, decide which photos people see, filter things out. You know, we become a product. Yeah, we, we become a product and we outsource things. We outsource, we, it, we allow the algorithms to formalise preference, what the preference, to decide what our preferences are. Yeah. So things we may have not seen as, as important before and now considered the be-all and end-all. So height is a perfect example. So... Uh, I've, I've had com this conversation with female friends um, about, you know, dating apps, because I'm researching it, I want to know what their experience of dating apps is, and they will tell me that they have filters on dating apps, uh, which say, you know, must be six foot. Yeah. And then I will say, but so have you ever dated anyone who's not six foot? And they always say yes. Right. I mean, okay, I'm like okay. five, I'm like 5'11", I'm not six foot, and these are some of these people I've dated myself. Okay. It's like, well, okay. you would have... Well, yeah. Were you wearing platforms or something? It's, it's, no. It feels <laughs> no, weird to I mean, have like a height chart. It's, it's a very common thing. And it's just, I, 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 men do this, this as well in different ways. But I think it's a good example of um, how what we think we want sometimes isn't what we actually are yeah. attracted to. It's almost like that's been imposed on us in some way by societal you, standards and Instagram and whatever it is. Do you, do you think these men that you've been talking to in that, that sort of subculture, 
has been impacted by discourses such as toxic masculinity and the way in which that has fed into popular culture advertising. The Gillette advert, which was struck me as just berating men for being men. Uh, it, it, do you think that's had an impact? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the stuff... Um, so, I mean, let's, for example, Me Too, the Me Too movement. Right. I think that was necessary. I think powerful men had got away with some pretty egregious things for, for far too long. But I think some people see that movement, some young men, and then they, they think that, you know, even approaching a woman, uh, even in, even in a, the, the, the appropriate context, say you're out at a bar and you approach someone and, you know, you behave properly, like if they're not interested, you respectfully yeah. leave. Yeah. They think that would be potentially harassment. I mean, that, that is something I've encountered with, with younger men. Yes. Younger friends of mine who I've seen, they, would, they wouldn't dream... Of, of doing that and it, it just um, I think that's been quite toxic it's just made it harder to meet people and I think it's I don't think that's particularly good for women either because I think women want to meet decent men and the thing is the bad guys will not be put off by that discourse they will still do it anyway they will still behave badly anyway but, but some of that discourse it puts off the 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 the, the decent people who yeah. are afraid of doing the wrong thing who are terrified of uh, of being, uh, you know, having their face on Twitter or Reddit um, because they've they've said the wrong thing on a dating app or whatever. Well, it's also when it comes to sexual matters, it's also very easy to be gauche and very easy to say the wrong thing. You know, anyway. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, and I've said to lie for that a bit. I think. Yeah. I mean, but I get why exactly what you say. There were clearly men in power getting away with all sorts of things, but also anyone who's who's living a life where they're sexually assaulting other people that needs to be stopped. Yeah. So all of that was sort of necessary. But then, I mean, I've, there are a number of uh, writers such as Ella Whelan, Joanna Williams have talked about the way in which bad dates, bad experiences with men has been folded into mm -hmm. these sort of uh, more egregious examples of sexual assault and rape and that kind of thing, to the extent that uh, some young people now find it dif difficult. They think that a, a, a someone making, making a bit of a clumsy, stumbling approach is the same as a Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, so I mean, so so a bad date has been folded into the category of abuse, right, or ghosting right. someone, like not replying to their text is is now is now abuse or, or gaslighting or, or something. I, I think, think it's rude. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, but but this is there is a difference I think between uh, I think there's an attempt to make everything unpleasant illegal or or you know someone has to be completely ostracised because they were unpleasant once. I mean, right. we have on the I mean I saw last week on the tube there are these posters which say. Um, unwanted staring uh, is is harassment. I and, saw that, and it it's. I mean, I'm unwanted staring of a sexual nature is harassment, and it's essentially that you could be arrested for it. I mean, they will never get a prosecution for that because it's subjective. What constitutes staring of a sexual nature is very. I mean, it's a bad. If someone's doing that, it's it's very creepy, and I don't think people should do that. Yeah. Make someone uncomfortable like that at all, but. You can't, I don't, that's a cultural thing. That, that requires cultural change. That requires people to behave more respectfully towards others. You cannot legislate to, to stop that happening. I, I, I the, fail to see how. But, but it's this idea that you can, I think, is, is dangerous because it gives this kind of false reassurance that you don't have to take any responsibility yourself. You don't have to get away from people who are doing things like that, that you can just rely on the state to solve your problem. And I think you know, where the state can solve the problems, it should to try to do that. But I think this, this kind of false reassurance, I think, is, it can be dangerous. 
I mean, there's no way you can police staring, or, or, or nor should you really, insofar as people have a right to look at what they want. And if people are being creepy, then if you know, surely someone can move away, and you know, you, you can't, you can't. It's subjective. I mean, is it creepier if the if the person doing it is unattractive? If if I feel uncomfortable because someone is looking at me and I find them very unattractive, does that is, does that mean it's now a criminal offence? Whereas yeah. if it's someone I find attractive, even say I'm with my girlfriend, I might find that uncomfortable. Does that mean it's okay? Then it's it's, right. it's completely subjective. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think we should um, go down the road of trying to actually police those things. I think yes. it's, I, I have no problem with the sign telling men that you shouldn't do that. It makes people feel very uncomfortable, that it's not cool and it's creepy and weird. But, I, but I, the I, idea I do, that, I do that, have that, it's that the law can intervene, I think. Why is that wrong. sign necessary? We all know that. And the people who don't know it are the creeps who, or who just, who, they know it as well. They just don't care. I, I, don't, I don't think everyone does know it. All men do know it. But I, again, I do agree with you in the sense that I don't think a sign is going to make much difference. <laughs> no. I think it's a broader kind of cultural thing. I think men should, I think generally in this space, I think in the space of kind of sexual relations, we should try to empathize with each other more. Like men and women have very different concerns. Men, I think one of the best things men can do is try to understand women's concerns around safety, for example, yeah. especially around dating. So, so, you know, I've never been on a date and worried about that I'm going to be stuffed in the boot of a car or something by the end of the night. That's never crossed my mind. And I think most men wouldn't realise that things like this do cross women's minds when yeah, they go and meet okay. a stranger. Now that's a very interesting point. You know, when you talk to women about walking home at night, they hold mm. their keys and things like this, yeah. stuff that just doesn't occur to men. But all of that kind of stuff surely could be brought into schooling. Uh, and, and that's the level where you should teach uh, boys about those realities that they wouldn't otherwise. I think once you get yeah. into the adult world, science telling you how to behave or trying to police forms of sexual behaviour. No, I agree. I agree. And there are some... Um, I've just written an article for Prospect magazine, actually, and there are some, some, some male figures, authority figures, who do run training programmes which are about creating kind of health, a healthy masculinity, which yeah. is... And there's something called the bystander approach, which uh, a guy called Graham Goulden, who's a former police sergeant in Scotland, and it's about intervening when you see friends of yours uh, doing something wrong around women. So, say, approaching a woman and just not backing off if they're not interested. Yeah. It, it teaches you as a mate to say, this isn't cool. And but I again, isn't that, that, that is very good. Isn't that for young people, right, really? I mean, I mean, Anyone, really. So, I mean, if you're... I think, I think it's valid, kind of, if, if your friend is make, make some really misogynist, like, remark. Yeah. I think it's, it's important to say that's not cool to... That I don't think that's cool to talk at that. Yeah. I, mean, I would do it with if my friends were making racism remarks or whatever. Well, so would I. I would say that I, I would say that's I, I don't want to hear that. I don't think that's cool. So would I. I, th I just think that sort of thing should be, that's about socialisation. I think mm -hmm. once it, it's, we're in adulthood, we're in a different, we're a different realm. But um, what, okay, but what about the idea that all of these problems are systemic, that, that, that there's something about, because I mean, I spoke to Christina Hoff Summers on this show and her thesis was that uh, boys at school are now being, are so, masculinity itself is so mistrusted that boys are being socialised to be girls. Because, there's, because the idea that, that there is something, there is such a thing as femininity and masculinity, that's so mistrusted that actually, but the end result of this is that rough play among boys is punished. In other words, we don't want boys to be boys. Do you think she's got a point? Uh, I think that is happening in some quarters, yeah. And I think it's, um, it's a problem. So, I mean, I think one of the things that, one of the issues I had as a teenager was I was very into kind of, punk and emo music that yeah. was kind of and I rebelled against traditional masculinity because my stepfather was kind of a dick and I didn't didn't really like him and he was always like you must play rugby or you're kind of a wimp if you you're a wuss if you don't do this and so I spent a long period of time 
uh, rebelling against that. Like I dyed my hair red, green, and kind of wore like piercings and stuff. I wouldn't say I was I was feminine or even androgynous. I was just not particularly masculine, and right. I did I did that created that kind of style on purpose. And weirdly enough, I did very poorly with the opposite sex. So right. I had to actually cultivate more masculinity to, to, to some extent. Anyway, going to, I started to go to the gym. I had to behave in a bit more of an assertive manner. Um, things that are traditionally considered more masculine traits because then I found actually it made it easier to actually get a girlfriend. I think that's, well, that's a real factor because I, I don't think you can... You, I, I think you're doing men a disservice if you say that there's no masculine like gender is gender is linked to sexuality to some extent i think yes there are aspects of gender that are socially constructed there are ridiculous things attached to gender that are socially constructed yeah but on some level masculinity is what's historically been selected for by well, women this is why we have uh this is why if you look at these studies that professor david buss has done these huge cross-cultural studies why do women value things like status strength yeah. why do and and so if you say things like Oh, men should not pursue status. Men should not lift weights because it's it's adhering to this false idea of what masculinity is. Well, you're actually probably doing a disservice to them because uh, it's probably going to damage their uh, their dating life if nothing else. And and yeah, I I think that's something that um, is a factor. Well, the studies are clear on that. A lot of women are attracted to traditionally masculine I mean, men. You don't have to be t a toxic male or no. whatever to like. You can you can be masculine without being toxic. I think this this idea that masculinity itself is is toxic. I think is that's just wrong. I mean, it's masculinity mm. can be all sorts of. Things. Masculinity can be protecting someone. Masculinity can be strength used. Masculinity is like strength, and you have strength, and you can use it in whichever way you choose. It's it doesn't mean that the strength itself is wrong or, or, or whatever or yeah I think or, or stoicism itself is somehow bad and I do think men and women communicate differently I think when we see I think men should talk more about their emotions I'm, I've my grandmother died in January and I've been grieving and one of the things that I've learned is that bottling it, bottling it up is not a good idea it's gonna come mm. back in the long term if I do that so I have to be emotive but I think men and women address the problems differently. My girlfriend likes to talk about stuff for the sake of talking about it and feels better for that, whereas I want a solution to the problem. And I think there are these, these slight subtle differences. And pretending that the only reason men don't want to spend endless hours in therapy is because they just are scared of their feelings. No, I don't think that's right. I think we have a different way of dealing with problems. Do you fear, extent, on average? I mean, you're writing about this sort of stuff, you're talking about this sort of stuff. Do you fear that people will, because people will accuse you of therefore being contributing to a misogynistic culture by yeah I by... know that's going to happen I don't really care anymore because okay. <laughs> it's like I mean sometimes I think about it but you just can't say anything worth saying unless you adhere to what you think is true yeah. and, and I'm not I'm you know now I'm kind of speculating a bit and everything I've said today I will go through in my book and challenge myself is like is that am I actually right about that what are these other people saying yeah but I feel like I've immersed myself in some of these subcultures more than pretty much anyone else I know. And so I do think I have a valid point to make. And you don't have to agree with me, but it's, not, but it's coming from a place of integrity, I think. I'm not just saying it because I have an agenda. or yeah. it's like I think this because this is, like, I'm, I'm prepared to be wrong, but this is what I think because I've, this is the evidence I've seen. Yeah, amen to that. Fantastic. Uh, James, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been really fun. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, James Bloodworth. If you enjoyed the show, please do like and subscribe. Tell your friends. 
And also check out James's books, The Myth of Meritocracy and Hired. You can also find James on Twitter at J underscore Bloodworth and on Instagram, James.Bloodworth. I'll see you next week.